0: Let's open our Bibles once more today to our studies in the book of Galatians, and this morning once again to chapter 3. So Galatians 3, where we'll begin reading in a few moments in verse 25. Fathers, we open your word now. We ask that you would speak to us from it, that you would make what Paul is saying to the churches of Galatia clear. And what you are saying uh, through Paul's words to the churches of Galatia to us, clear as well. And that we would heed what we hear, and that we would believe what we hear, and that we would apply what we hear in our own lives, and that you would speak to us so that it would be inescapable for us to do so. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just to briefly catch us up to speed on what's been going on in this book of Galatians, I want you to recall that the, the reason, the primary reason Paul wrote this letter was to convince the Galatian churches that our justification before God, our being declared righteous in God's sight, is not by works of the law, but rather by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This core doctrine of the faith was beginning to be doubted in Galatia in favor of the idea that if we really want to be right with God, if we really want to be Christians, then we must also become Jews as well. We must begin keeping all the Mosaic ceremonies like circumcision and kosher laws and the festivals and so on. And then God will really declare us righteous in his sight. But in this third chapter of his letter, Paul has been at pains to demonstrate that this is emphatically not the case, not the gospel. Indeed, we have seen him marshal the evidence of the logic of the cross in verse 1 and of the Galatians' own experience in verses 2 through 5, and even bringing together the teaching of the Old Testament itself in verses 6 through 18 to demonstrate that we cannot be right with God, we must not be right with God, by the keeping of the laws of Moses. Not only because we ourselves could never keep them perfectly in verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12, but also because the law was never intended to be a means of righteousness before God in verses 17 and 18. To borrow again from Alistair Begg this morning, the law is not a ladder up which we climb to acceptance with God. Justification is by faith in the works of Christ and not by our own works in the laws of Moses. But then Paul asks an important question, namely, if the law of Moses cannot justify us, and if indeed it was never intended to justify us, why the law then? Last week, verse 19, why did God give all these ceremonies and civil statutes in the first place? And we said last week, with some proofs that you can go back to and listen online, that in this context, Paul is primarily thinking about the civil and ceremonial laws that God gave through Moses, not the moral law, not the Ten Commandments that God spoke directly himself at Sinai. For while it's true that the moral law, just like the civil and ceremonial, is not a ladder by which we can achieve justification, it's not true, as Paul is going to go on and say, that we're no longer under the moral law of God at all he's going to argue that today about the civil and ceremonial statutes not the moral but the question in verse 19 then is why did God command all these civil and ceremonial things why all these old testament ceremonies why all these civil statutes and legal penalties and property rights and so on in the books of Moses if they weren't ever intended to make us right with God And the answer, which we saw last week, was that God did so in order that the law might become a custodian or a tutor for us. In order that the law might be, as William Hendrickson unpacks Paul's analogy, like the man of old whose job it was to escort his boss's sons to school every day and to watch over their conduct while they were there and to make sure that they were engaging in their studies. That's how the law of Moses' function for the Jews. We see that there in verses 23 and 24. It wasn't their salvation. It wasn't God's ultimate and final plan for them. But like a custodial tutor in the first century, the law was meant to escort God's children to their actual salvation, to their Messiah. In other words, verse 24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But the question now, today, is what is to be done with the tutor? What is to be done with the law of Moses now that it has completed its task? Now that the Messiah has come, now that faith in the Messiah has come, to which the tutor was always pointing, what do we do with the tutor? And the answer comes in verse 25, does it not? But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under those laws of Moses. This is why we no longer have to eat kosher or be circumcised for religious purposes or keep the Old Testament festivals and sacrifices because now that Christ has come, now that the way of faith in Jesus has been made clear, we are no longer to hold the tutor's hand who took us to school all those years. No, no. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come... We are no longer under a tutor. Now, the problem in Galatia was not only that the Galatians were trying to keep a law which God never required them to keep, now that faith in Christ had come, but that they were trying to keep it precisely in order to be justified, in order to add something to the finished work of Christ. And so by taking the old laws and trying to now add them to Christ, they were minimizing and forgetting about the very Christ to whom all those Old Testament laws were supposed to point them. They had become, as we said last week, they had become so infatuated with retracing all the twists and turns of the mosaic road map that led to Christ, that they'd slowly begun to walk back down that mosaic trail and away from the Christ into whose presence the road map was just a means to an end. Now that they had met Christ himself, it was time to put down the road map, it was time to let go of the tutor's hand and to rejoice in the fact that they had reached their destination. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now that faith has come, now that we have seen and known Christ himself, we no longer need the Mosaic Laws, whose only real purpose was ever to bring people to Christ. Now all of that is where we've been so far. And today... As we press ahead from verse 25 down through chapter 4, verse 11, Paul is going to reinforce these things. He's going to reinforce the fact that in Christ we no longer need the tutor of the law by reminding the Galatians that in Christ we are God's sons, and indeed that in Christ we are the grown-up kind of sons who no longer need the Father's custodian to lead us by the hand. That's the real theme of the next handful of verses. In Christ, we are sons and we are grown-up sons who no longer need to hold the tutor's hands. And you see that put succinctly there in the first two verses of our text this morning, verses 25 and 26. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for or because you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You're no longer under a tutor because you're your sons. So here's one reason why we no longer need to eat kosher or be circumcised or keep the Passover or offer lambs for sacrifice. Not only because Christ has come and accomplished the very salvation that these things symbolize, but also because in Christ, we are no longer slaves who need to be led around by the hand, nor even minor sons who need a custodian watching over us, but rather in Christ, we are sons, heirs, heirs of age at that, so that the inheritance is now ours, Christ is now ours, and the custodians who lead us to him are no longer needed. Listen to how Paul puts it himself now in longer form, beginning there in verse 25 and reading all the way down through chapter 4, verse 11. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which were by nature, which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. Again, what is Paul getting at in this passage? He's reminding us that if we are in Christ, we are no longer slaves as the Gentiles were, nor are we even any longer minor sons as the Jews were, We are no longer people who need to be held by the hand, who need a custodian watching over them until they reach their destinations. Rather, in Christ, we are sons and sons of age at that, so that the inheritance is now ours. In other words, so that Christ and faith are now ours, such that we no longer need the Mosaic law to order our steps. We've already arrived as grown-up sons and daughters at the place which the law was meant to take us. Now, before we continue on Paul's primary train of thought there, that our sonship means that we are free from the Mosaic Law, before we consider further how our son and daughter, sonship and daughterhood relates to the custodianship of the law, let's just pause for a moment and bask in the fact that if we are in Christ, well, then we are sons of God, daughters of the King. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Paul mentions it sort of as a sub-point to his main point about the law, but isn't it a wonderful thing that we should just ponder for a moment before we move on with Paul's main argument? If your faith is in Jesus Christ, not only have you been declared righteous in God's courtroom, but in that same courtroom the gavel has also dropped on your adoption into God's family. Not only, in other words, are you right with the judge in Christ, but in Christ you are also taken in by a father. My friends Justin and Cho Huffman, as some of you know, just this past Thursday finalized the adoption of their new little girl, Eva. And they sent us a picture from the courtroom where a judge had ruled that officially, legally, irreversibly, Eva is their little girl, always. And that decision is final. Eva doesn't have to do any certain things to really become their daughter or to somehow become more a part of their family than she is today. The papers have been signed, the gavel has dropped, and Eva is a Huffman, period, always. And so it is with adoption into God's family. Verse 26 here does not say that if you do well enough at keeping the Old Testament laws, then you can become God's child. Nor does it even say that if you keep the Old Testament laws, you'll be even just a little bit more God's child. Or that if you keep the laws of Moses, you'll remain God's child. No, Paul simply says to the Galatians, and it applies to all of us who have faith in Jesus like they did, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Sons of God through faith in Christ The adoption, in other words, he says, has already taken place. The adoption is final. And like Eva Huffman, we can neither add anything to our adoption nor take anything away from our adoptions by means of the ways that we perform. The papers have been signed in God's courtroom in the blood of his own son. The gavel has dropped and we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And so the Galatians needn't try and add anything to that. They needn't do what they've been doing. They needn't try, by means of the Mosaic Law, to become more God's sons than they already are, fully and completely in Christ. And I say it's a beautiful thing, adoption. We who so badly needed a father, we who were on our own, we who were spiritual orphans, have been taken in not only in the Father's courtroom, but in His living room, and in His kitchen, in His house. And we are loved, not as slaves, not as servants who may also live in the house, but we are loved as sons and daughters, as beloved children, the same way and even better than we love our own children. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a marvelous truth in and of itself, adoption into God's family. But we need to see even further how Paul unpacks that and how he relates our adoption to the main point of his letter, which is that we are not justified by works of the law, and consequently, how it is that our adoption means that we no longer need to keep the Mosaic law at all. That's what Paul is arguing in verses 25 and 26, is it not? Now that faith has come, we are no longer... Under a tutor, for or because, because you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, you don't need the mosaic law because of your sonship. And so, our sonship is not only a beautiful thing, but it also has whole implications for this whole question of the law. And so, we need to see how Paul unpacks all of this. And I want to unpack Paul's unpacking by showing you six things he says about our sonship in Christ. Six points that he makes about our daughterhood. In Jesus. And the first is this. He shows us in verses 3 through 5 the price of our sonship. Chapter 4 verses 3 through 5, the price of our sonship. Most of you are probably aware that adoption proceedings often cost money, sometimes a great deal of money. But here is an adoption in Galatians 4 that costs more than all the rest put together. For we, verse 3, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So what was the price of our adoption? The greatest price that was ever paid, right? The giving up of the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, to come to earth and shed His precious blood to redeem you and me from our bondage. God sent forth His Son so that He might redeem, so that we might receive the adoption as sons ourselves. In order that we might be adopted daughters, in order that we might be God's adopted sons, God sent forth His eternal Son, His only begotten Son, the one who had been with him all throughout eternity. He sent him down out of heaven and to the earth and to the cross so that you and I might become sons with him. It was, I say again, the most expensive adoption there ever was, more costly than all the earthly adoptions combined. And why such a cost? Well, not because of the various legal and clerical fees as in our adoptions today, This adoption was so costly because God actually bought us back out of bondage is what the text says. We were slaves, Paul says in verse 3, in bondage under the elemental things of the world. In bondage under the elemental things of the world. By which phrase, as William Hendrickson explains, Paul is probably here referring to the ways that both Jews and Gentiles, by their adherence to their own respective rituals, tried to save themselves. Jews were in bondage to the laws of Moses because they were trying to save themselves by them. Gentiles were in bondage to their own pagan rituals and rites by which they were trying to save themselves. And so Jews and Gentiles alike, Paul says, are in bondage, enslaved to false ways of thinking, enslaved to false doctrines of salvation and to the rituals whereby they sought to achieve it. And in order to be redeemed from bondage, a redemption price must be paid, verse 4 that's the way out of slavery, right? That someone comes like Hosea in pursuit of his prostitute wife and plunks down the coin to liberate the captive, to emancipate the slave. And God is saying here that Jesus came and paid that price down to the last cent by shedding his precious blood for his people. We are all we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so as we work through Paul's argument, this is the first thing to notice, and it's really at the core of Christian theology, isn't, isn't it? Something that we must never forget, the price of our adoption the price of our sonship but then we also need to see briefly the receipt of our sonship in verse 26 of chapter 3 the receipt of our sonship Christ paid for our adoption into God's family but how do we receive that gift well i won't linger long here because i covered it in our introduction but just notice again from verse 26 that the way we become sons of god the way we become daughters of the king. The way we receive our adoption is not by works, but by simple faith in Christ. For you are all sons of God, verse 26, through faith in Christ Jesus. And so back in verse 26, before Paul ever gets very far into his argument about sonship and the Mosaic law, he informs the Galatians that they became sons. They received the gift of adoption simply with the empty and open hand of faith. Now again, we dwelt on this already, and so I won't linger long here, but I do have to ask you before we move on, if you have such faith, if you've been willing to accept the fact that your acceptance before God, both in His courtroom and in His dining room, both in terms of your justification and in terms of your adoption into his family? Have you been willing to let yourself believe that your acceptance with God in these ways doesn't have to be earned, doesn't have to be deserved, doesn't have to be worked for, doesn't have to be paid back, but that all you must do is believe God, take him at his word and reach out like an orphan and just accept what the Father offers to do for you? My friend, if you are slaving away, hoping to merit a place at God's table, the good news this morning is that you needn't. Rather, just simply trust that the Father really means it when He says that the adoption fees have already been paid, verses 4 and 5, and that all you must do to receive them is believe His promise and put out your empty hand and receive it. For you are all sons of God through faith, in Christ Jesus. That is the receipt of our sonship by faith. And then thirdly, as we press further into Paul's argument concerning sonship and the law, we need to notice the equality of our sonship. The equality of our sonship there in verses 26 through 29. Now this point is corollary to the last one, and the relationship between the two points works like this if we become sons and daughters of God, verse 26, through faith in Christ, and therefore not as a result of our adherence to the Mosaic law, if we become God's children by faith in Christ and not by adherence to the law, well then, the Gentiles, this is what Paul is saying in verses 26 through 29, the Gentiles who have faith are just as much the children of God as the Jews who have faith. Because sonship doesn't have to do with our adherence to Moses, but with our adherence to Jesus. See if you can hear that as I read to you verses 26 through 29 again. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Did you hear it? What Paul is arguing is that since we become God's children by faith, verse 26, the Gentiles are not somehow lesser children of God than their Jewish neighbors who believe in Christ and also don't eat pork. Indeed, in Christ, verse 29, the Gentiles are sons of Abraham just like the Jews are. And not only are we sons of Abraham by faith, but Paul says in verse 26, you are all Jews and Gentiles alike. In other words, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. And equally so, because sonship, daughterhood, is through faith and not through the law of Moses. In the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Verse 28 And there are no other distinctions either that would make some Christians first class and others second. For you are all one. Not in the law, but in Christ Jesus, verse 28. And so the doctrine of justification by faith alone and adoption by faith alone actually creates unity in the church. The problem in Galatia was disunity. Here you have these Judaizers who've come in and said, if you Gentile Christians really want to be right with God, you have to live like us Jews. And there's division created by that. But when we say, no, we are are children of God, we are justified by faith in Christ, then the Jews and the Gentiles, they're all on equal footing, aren't they? There's unity in the church because... The word alone, the fact that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone and not by anything that we are or do, places every Christian on equal ground. Some Christians may be more mature than others. Some may have more godly upbringings than others. Some may have differing roles than others, as men and women do in the church. Paul will go on and explain elsewhere. Some may have greater social status than others, but no Christian is any more justified than another Christian. And no believer is any less a son or daughter of God than another believer. Because justification, as Paul has been arguing at length, and now adoption also in chapter 3, are through faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. And I hope you take that seriously. Whether you are the sort of Christian who often feels like you're behind the curve, or maybe even second class, or whether you're the kind who is prone to think yourself ahead of the game, and really among the church's elite There are differences in us, and we should all strive to greater maturity and so on. But if we genuinely believe on Christ, neither our varying stages of maturity, nor our diverse roles in the church, nor the divergence of our backgrounds, nor our spiritual gifts, nor anything else that is not faith in Jesus can make us more or less Christian more or less justified, more or less a child of God. There is absolute equality when it comes to our justification and our sonship in Christ. So we've thought about the price of our sonship, we've thought about the receipt of our sonship, that it's by faith, and how that creates, thirdly, the equality of our sonship. And now in the fourth place, let's notice an analogy for our sonship in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4. An analogy. For sonship, Listen to verses 1 and 2 again. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. And do you see the analogy Paul is giving here? Prior to the coming of Christ, prior to the making clear of the way of faith, the Jews were like children, verse 1. They had an inheritance waiting for them, Christ, But they hadn't yet come into possession of it. They weren't ready yet to receive the full blessing that God was preparing for them because Christ had not yet come. They still needed to be under adult supervision, so to speak. They still needed to be under custody, the custody of the law of Moses. And So you picture a young lad today whose father owns, let's say, a pizzeria. Someday, that boy will be in charge of the pizzeria. But he's not in charge today. He might go into the pizzeria, he might work in the pizzeria and beginning to learn the ropes of the pizzeria, but he will do all those things under the supervision of the father or of the father's trusted right-hand man, right? And so, while there is a sense in which the boy is already kind of the owner, verse 1, there is also the reality that he's not ready, verse 2, to take the shop into his own hand just yet. And we are like that spiritually too, Paul says in verse 3. We were like that. But there was a fullness of time, verses 4 and 5, when the custodian's job was complete and when the father was ready to hand over the keys, and when the children were ready now to use them. And as we saw up in verses 24 and 25, when that day comes, when the child is old enough not any longer to need the custodian supervision, the child is no longer under the custodian at all. And down in verse 7, the same is true for the Gentiles. The Gentiles weren't like the Jews. They weren't minor sons of God. They were actually like slaves to their own... False gods. And yet now, by adoption, they're sons of God through faith in Christ too. And having been adopted into the family, they are heirs too. And so the pizzeria, if you will, is theirs too. Since Christ has come, he is theirs too. Since Christ has come, neither the original sons nor the newly adopted sons need any longer serve under the custodian. And so Paul's analogy of sonship is that while a father does not place either his minor son or an unprepared slave in charge of the inheritance, but rather he places them under the charge of a custodian, yet there is a fullness of the time that comes when those sons will be ready and when those slaves will be adopted and when they as heirs will take possession of the inheritance and will no longer need to be managed by custodians. And Christ is the inheritance. And now that he has come, now that the sons have taken hold of him, they no longer need the law of Moses to guide them along until the fullness of the time. For in Christ, the fullness of the time has come. And so we ponder earthly heirs in verses 1 through 7. We look at this analogy of earthly heirs and the custodians that they are under and the fullness of the time when the custodians are no longer necessary. And we have then in the fourth place an analogy for our sonship in the gospel. And then in the fifth place, let's also take notice of the evidence of our sonship. How do you know if you're really a son or daughter of God? What is the evidence of our sonship in verse 6? One answer, of course, the evidence of our sonship is that it is our faith in Christ, right? That's how we became God's children in verse 26 in the first place. So one way you know that someone is a son is because their faith is very evidently in the son. But are there any more evidences? Is there anything else that would demonstrate that our faith really is in Christ and that therefore we really are sons of God? Daughters of the king. Well, just notice briefly what Paul says here in chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now here's something that's not immediately analogous to an earthly adoption, particularly when the adopted child is a little older. An earthly adopted child may not always have an instinct And it may not always be easy for the adoptee of a human father to begin to relate to that human father as his father. It may take a while for this child brought into a home to begin to acclimate to that relationship. But for the Christian, for the adoptee into God's family, there is this instinct placed in us, verse 6, by the Holy Spirit, by which we begin, at the beginning, to relate to God as our Father. Now, that doesn't mean that some people might not have hang-ups concerning the fatherhood of God because they were mistreated or neglected by their own earthly fathers. But what this verse 6 does mean is that if a person is really a believer in Christ and thus really a child of God, he or she will begin to think of God as his or her Father which is why those hang-ups happen, because we are thinking of God as our Father by a new spiritual instinct, and then sometimes we have to go back and figure out how do we make that fit with how the word Father sounds to us in our own historic cases. But we're already thinking of God as Father. That's why that dilemma is there for some people, and why for others it's just a very warm thing that we begin immediately to realize that we are God's child. And so one evidence that we are the children of God is, verse 6, that we begin to really think and therefore act as though God were our Abba, Father. We gain an instinct, like a child with a loving father, to run to this God whenever we have a need. We are imbued with a certain unique attentiveness, like a boy with his daddy, to the deep sound of the father's voice so that we hear His voice above every other voice, both when we need the comfort of its deep baritone and when we need to hear the thunder of its rebuke. For God's children, we hear the Father's voice and we desire, like a child with a good earthly father, to heed that voice, to obey that voice, to honor our Father. This is how we know we are children of God. Yes, because our faith is in His Son, but then also because we begin to think and to act and to cry out as though God were really our Father, which He is. Here in the fifth place is an evidence of our sonship. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that fits with Paul's overall theme because he's saying to the Galatians, you know God already as your father. You're already crying out to him as your father. Why would you think you have to do something more now to make him more your father? You're already adopted, verse 26, and in your heart you already know that you're adopted. You're already relating to God as father. Why do you think you still have to perform in order to make him so? There is evidence for our sonship that should cause us not to think we have to continue to relate to God based on performance. So we've considered the price of our sonship in verses 3 through 5, the receipt of our sonship in verse 26, the equality of our sonship in verses 26 through 29, an analogy for our sonship in verses 1 through 7, and an evidence of our sonship in verse 6. And then finally, and again veering back to Paul's main thrust in this letter to the Galatians, finally we need to consider the practice of our sonship in verses 8 through 11, the practice of our sonship. If we are God's children, if we are adopted into his family, and therefore heirs of all that is in Christ, and if our standing before God, both as adopted and as justified, has come to us by faith in Christ and not by our adherence to Old Testament ceremony, what should our practice be concerning Old Testament ceremony? concerning the law of Moses what should we do with it well the answer very clearly in verses 8 through 11 is that we should not turn around now as children who've let go of the hand of the tutor and reach back and try to take his hand again we should not turn around and add Jewish custom back in that was only ever meant to bring us to Christ where we are We should not seek circumcision for religious purposes. We should not feel the need to eat kosher. We should not add the Mosaic festivals into our Christian lives and calendars. And especially so for these Gentile Christians who have begun to wonder if doing such things might make them just a little more right with God, just a little more his children. Those things won't make you any more right with God, Paul has argued, and they won't make you any more his child. And so you need to steer clear of them, he says here in verses 8 through 11. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Now again, borrowing my understanding from the great commentator William Hendrickson, let me see if I can't paraphrase what Paul is saying here in these verses. You Gentiles, he's saying in verse 8, were already enslaved once before to mere earthly things to mere outward rituals and gods that you thought would be your salvation but were actually no avail at all. And so how is it, verse 9, that having come to Christ and having been delivered from your false ways of trying to achieve salvation, how is it that now you're simply turning back and grasping after another false way of salvation and once again getting yourself all tangled up in outward rituals that cannot save? You see, the rituals are different. They had their pagan rituals before, now they're trying to adopt Christian rituals. But in both places, they're trying to do something themselves to save themselves. And Paul is asking them, how can you do that? You've already seen that you need it and couldn't save yourself. You've already seen that Christ is the answer. Why are you now grasping for, again for something other than Christ? The specific outward rituals to which the Galatians are now turning are Jewish rituals, yes, verse 10. They're the rituals of the law of Moses, which as Paul has shown were never meant to justify and which have become obsolete with the coming of Christ. And so he says, how can you turn to another set of rituals? The first ones couldn't save you and neither can the ones given by Moses. That's not what they're for. Maybe, verse 11, maybe I've been wasting my time. Maybe you're not Christians... After all, indeed, it's that serious. The Galatians turning to the laws of Moses, to the Old Testament ceremonial law, in an attempt to complete their salvation, is so serious that Paul fears that he may have labored over them in vain. He fears that they may not be Christians at all not because a sin like this or any other sin for that matter can cause a person to lose his or her salvation, but because if the Galatians are now trying to add something to the finished work of Christ, do they really get the finished work of Christ to begin with? If they don't think Jesus' sinless life and substitutionary death and resurrection on the third day received by faith are enough to make us right with God and to bring us into his family, well, then maybe these Galatians aren't really Christians At all, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Now again, remember from last week that it is the ceremonial law that the Galatians are trying to add in here. The Mosaic laws given by the agency of a mediator, chapter 3, verse 19. Not the moral law, not the Ten Commandments in other words which were spoken directly by God himself on Sinai. So the problem in verse 10, the days and months and seasons and years about which Paul is concerned and which the Galatians are adhering to unnecessarily is not the Sabbath day itself, which is part of the moral law and which was in place before the laws of Moses and which therefore stands. Indeed, all the moral laws, all the Ten Commandments, one through ten, stand. Not, of course, as a means of... Salvation, but as a way of life which God does still expect that mankind shall adhere to. And so Paul's issue with the Galatians were not, was not that they're trying to honor their parents or refrain from idolatry or honor the Sabbath day. They could have done all those things and they should have done all those things in order to please the Lord, all the while realizing that they'd never do them enough to be justified. But the ceremonies, the Mosaic laws, no longer needed to be done at all, not even as a means of pleasing the Lord. And that's not even how the Galatians thought of them either. They actually thought of the ceremony, circumcision, kosher laws, the various Jewish holidays here in verse 10. They thought they needed to be done as part of their justification, as a means of becoming more righteous in God's sight. And they were dead wrong. So wrong that Paul wonders aloud here if maybe they aren't Christians at all because they don't get this. He wonders aloud if he has perhaps labored in vain over them. And so let me wonder aloud as well and say something similar to you before we close this morning. Namely that if you think that there is something that you must add to the finished work of Jesus in order to make yourself more right with God or really saved or truly God's child, if you think that you can or that you must, or that you have contributed anything to your justification or anything to your adoption in God's family, indeed anything to the finished work of Christ, I fear for you, that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. It's that serious. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are justified, that we are declared righteous in God's sight, that we are adopted into his family by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, not by observance of the Mosaic law, civil or ceremonial, not by adherence to the world's standards of what it seems like to be a good person, not by any ethical or religious code that we come up with ourselves. Indeed, we are declared righteous in God's sight by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not even by adherence to the moral law of God, which is still incumbent upon us, but which we can never keep well enough. We can never keep to such an extent that we can make ourselves righteous before a holy God. And if we think otherwise... If we think we're right with God because we attend church regularly or because we aren't adulterers or because we tithe or because we raise our kids in a certain way or because we don't eat certain foods or because we don't work on Sunday or because we did anything other than trust in the merits of Jesus, then not only have we not understood properly the purposes of God's law, but we also haven't understood the freeness of the gospel. And we're in eternal peril. And so I urge you today, Let it not be that I have labored in vain over you. Let it not all be for nothing that we've spent these weeks in Galatians and all these years in this pulpit expounding the doctrine of justification by faith alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Lay down your efforts at self justification and come and trust in Christ alone. We are sons of God, verse 26, simply and only and marvelously through faith in Christ.